Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this episode of World of Intelligence by Jane's. Your host, Harry Kemsley, and as usual, my co-conspirator, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. <laughs> okay, so, Sean, I think of all the podcasts we've done, the most frequent topic we've touched on in probably every single one of them, if not every single one of them, the vast majority, is tradecraft, intelligence tradecraft. And I think we've said probably 100 times, we really should have a podcast about tradecraft at some point. And so today we have. And I am absolutely delighted to say that we have probably one of the most expert people in the world, certainly in the intelligence world, in Tradecraft. And that is our guest today, Neil Wiley. Hello, Neil. Thank you for joining. Hi, good morning. Good afternoon, I suppose it is where you are. Yeah, God save the king. Neil Wiley is a former naval officer and intelligence professional. He retired in 2021 after nearly 40 years of government service as an intelligence analyst by profession and latterly a reluctant bureaucrat by requirement. He served in numerous senior analytical and intelligence leadership positions at the Department of Defense and national levels, including director for analysis at the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, chairman of the National Intelligence Council, the intelligence community or source analytical element, and finally, as principal deputy director of national intelligence. He's currently a professor of practice at the University of Maryland's Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security, and the managing principal for Lyceum Consulting. So Neil, given that incredible track record that you've got in all the places that you've been, very senior positions, leading tradecraft, I guess we should start the conversation with what do you think the word tradecraft means? What do we mean when we say in the intelligence context, tradecraft? So that's a good question because it's a sort of a squishy word. We use it a lot, but um, but it means different things to different people and it certainly means different things in different contexts. Um, Tradecraft at its most basic, are the tactics, techniques, and procedures that a discipline within the intelligence community uses to achieve its mission. So so tradecraft is different and tradecraft applies across the intelligence community. There is tradecraft in human intelligence collection. There is tradecraft in signals intelligence collection. There is tradecraft in measurement and uh, signatures intelligence collection. And there is tradecraft in intelligence analysis, which is really where my expertise lies. Um, They're not the same tradecraft, but they are tradecraft nonetheless. And tradecraft is used to ensure that we perform our jobs to a standard and that that standard can be explained right and i think fundamentally that's tradecraft within the intelligence community and of course again it differs by discipline and i suspect we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the analytic discipline yeah in tradecraft yeah so if tradecraft is about that standard and it's about being able to explain what you've done i guess what it comes down to then is there is a process that needs to be 
seen and recognized there is going to be an element of judgment and i think that's what the word craft is talking to so you've got the process you've got craft and the net of those two is what we mean by tradecraft is that a reasonable summary i think that is that's absolutely reasonable um there's a difference in where we get wrapped around the axle in the intelligence community frequently um particularly in analysis there is a difference between ethics and tradecraft so fundamentally, and it may seem ironic uh, for a, a community like the intelligence community, which you know does some fairly insalubrious things to get its job done, um, but we operate in a very strong ethical foundation. So the ethics of intelligence analysis are that intelligence analysis is objective, that it is apolitical that all source assessment is really done through the fullest possible consideration of all relevant sources, um, that it shows up on time, and that it demonstrates um, a degree of transparency and applicability that allows the, the consumer to interact with it. Those are the ethics of intelligence analysis. Tradecraft are the tactics, techniques, and procedures we use to bake that ethic into a tangible output. So I think a good example is uh, the medical profession. So the medical profession operates under a 2,500-year-old ethic. And that ethic really fundamentally hasn't changed. You raise your right hand or whatever doctors do, and they you know, swear to uphold the Hippocratic Oath. But the tactics, techniques, and procedures that the medical profession uses has moved on a lot in 2,500 years. So I don't think Hippocrates would recognize an awful lot of stuff that goes on into how they do their job. But I think Hippocrates would recognize the mission, role, and ethic of the medical profession. And I think that's the dis fundamental distinction between ethics and tradecraft. Ethics don't change, or at least they you have to have a very compelling reason to change your ethic. Yeah. Tradecraft evolves as capability evolves. Tradecraft evolves as the adversary evolves. Tradecraft evolves as our discipline evolves. Tradecraft always evolves. So, but we we conflate ethics and tradecraft sometimes when we're talking about it because we don't make that distinction. And I think the distinction is very important because um if you confuse tradecraft and ethics, um, you you might take the position, as I know I have done in the past as well, that tradecraft can't change. Right. right. But if you separate the ethical underpinning of what you're trying to do from the how you do it, then it becomes not only easy to understand that tradecraft can change, and there's actually a, a, a mandate, you know, a compelling need for it to evolve. As long as ultimately all of those things that you do are still consistent with your fundamental ethic that, you know, you should be objective, you should be all source, you should be apolitical, you should show up on time, and you should be able to explain what you do, then you're good. Yeah. Okay. So there's at least a hundred things in there that I, I want to dig into. I'm going to have time for a few. I want to come back to the um, evolutionary part. And the, the fact of the matter is we're different. We've got a different informational world today than we had 
even a few years ago. But before I go any further into that, Sean, you and I have spoken so many times about tradecraft on podcasting in the previous years we've known each other. It would be remiss of me not to give you the opportunity to give your perspective of tradecraft before we go any further. So, Sean. Um, it might surprise Neil to uh, find out that I actually agree with him 100% because we like to spar. But no, it's it's the tradecraft piece is the standard repeatable processes. It's, you know, it, it's how we do our business, if you like. But it is squishy. I love that word as well, the squishy word, because it, 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 it's, it's, it is quite hard to define, which is why I really like the way that you, you've took, taken the ethics away as, as, a, as a distinct piece, because one is a process, basically, the, the tradecraft. And that I would include, in, to an extent, analytical standards. So and I'm quoting from the ICD 203, which clearly needs updating because it was written in uh, January 2015, which is an issue in itself. But, you know, it, it's got to be the standardised way of doing things. But as Neil said, you know, I think some people hide behind that because, right, I've got to do it this way because that's what the documentation said. When, when of course, you know, the, the advances in technology, the advances in how we do stuff, the advances in, in the way that we, you know, create information or even collect information actually means that it has to be adaptable. Um, we could get on to the, uh, on the ethics thing. Obviously, we had a, we did have a podcast with Amy Zegar who absolutely nailed it. And she said, you know, definitely of ethics is that which is right, to which the question is, well, who decides what's right? But that's for another day. But I yeah. do like the way that we've delineated that. So the standard repeatable processes and, you know, for me, the difference between maybe tradecraft, which has to be, you know, it has to be softer than, than right, do this, 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 and analytical standards, which is the legalities, the how we treat it security wise, maybe even the terminology and the, you know, confidence level, that sort of, they, they are different, but they are also entwined. Yeah, I think in that Venn diagram that we've probably just painted that the ethical aspects of what we do in tradecraft how we adopt certain techniques how do we perform certain te techniques i should say is probably where amy's pointing her finger in terms of there are ethics in what we do but i also like the separation of the two because it allows the fundamental truth of intelligence to endure but how we generate it how we understand it how we audit it that's the bit that's evolving continuously. So I do like that. But I sense we could probably spend the next hour or so just on that one topic. So I'm going to pivot us to something else you said, which is about this standardization piece, Neil. So we've established that good process, best practice is what we're capturing, among other things, in our tradecraft. But I think you also said, or you alluded to, the fact that we could end up getting hung up on that to the point where we cannot evolve, we cannot innovate. And one of the things that I've seen, and I think we'll probably find time to talk about in a few minutes, is out in the commercial space, since I left the intelligence community, the rate of change, not just of technology, but of techniques, you know, Ukraine has opened some people's eyes to the power of open sources for derived intelligence. The techniques that are being developed are evolving very, very fast. We'll come back to the potential synergies between commercial and government another in a moment. But for now, let me bring you to that point that you, I think, were alluding to, which is the static nature of tradecraft vice the need for it to evolve and innovate. Yeah, so uh, to follow on from what Sean was saying, so it, uh, I'll I'll pivot off of uh, uh, Sean's point on ICD two hundred three, and um, and you will be pleased to know, Sean, that normal service has been resumed, because I don't entirely agree with you on the utility of ICD two hundred three. They uh, 
So, but I think it's a good example of how you can look at the same thing different ways and come to a different conclusion, uh, which we do in analysis all the time. So, so yes, I think there is a danger that that gradecraft becomes rote, and um, and intelligence analysis is a deeply human thing. It's fluid. It's imaginative. It is all of those things that you actually can't write up flowchart to do, despite you know a number of attempts to you know find some automated way of doing analysis. Um, but I do think there is a general need for a framework that determines or or suggests best practice for what becomes a more meritorious assessment. Um, and a lot of times that tradecraft is aimed, a lot of our tradecraft is aimed at how you convey judgments to the consumer so that the consumer understands them better or can get a better sense of what's really underneath it. Because it, in my opinion, as important as the assessment or judgment we convey to the policymaker or the commander or whoever gets it is that we convey what's under the hood of it what's it based on um and a lot of uh, our modern tradecraft in 203 is post iraq wmd commission and it addresses some of the um shortfalls that in intelligence publications, particularly for senior leadership, had in the lead up to the Iraq war, in which we were less than clear about what was under the hood of a number of things we said. So fundamentally, the tradecraft elements in ICD 203 now are, um, are intentionally designed so that intelligence is not misleading. Um, you know, that we do not say state something as a fact when we know it not to be, when it is a judgment held to some degree of confidence. So um, so I think the basic tenets in 203, and this is where I get back to 203, Sean, the basic tenets in 203 are, uh, are useful and applicable as technology changes. As 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 managers of intelligence or leaders of analysis, what we can't do is read them verbatim and, and apply them as as rigorous mathematical formulas. What we have to do is look at the the sense of what that tradecraft standard in ICD 203 is is trying to convey. You know, should we have to be able to explain how we arrived at our judgment? Yeah, we should. You know, should our judge should we explain our source sourcing, how much we liked it, how much we didn't, where we wish we had more? Yeah, of course we should. Uh, should we have to explain the assumptions or whatever other frog DNA we stuck into that assessment in order to make it make sense? Yes, we should. Um, and and should we you know, we should um, we should make transparent dissent or alternative views. So none of those things are outmoded or outdated. But they become problematic when analytic managers look at them and say there must be one particular way of doing that. And that's when a document like 203 risks becoming inflexible. Right. So it really is the flexibility of the people reading it that, that have to that matters. 
Yeah, that, that was it. As always, uh, you put it far more eloquently than I did, but that's exactly the point I was trying to make. You know, per se, it's very good, um, you know, framework, which is what you, you just said, but it's people that apply it too rigidly. Um, and the poor analyst who's trying to do their best in terms of coming up with the so what and the what if feels constrained by potentially managers who, no, no, this is how you do it. Uh, so right. it's, it's, it's that balance between constraining the, you know, the intellect and the thought and, 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 and that sort of thing from the do it this way. So it's exactly what you said. But, but why, why would there be a need for somebody's inflexibility? Because people aren't, don't get out of bed this morning and say, I will be inflexible. They get out of bed and they follow process. But is it because they believe that's the only way it can be done? Is there a sense of risk concern, a diversity to risk that if I don't do it the right way, it's wrong? Is that the problem? Well, uh, I think all of the above. I, I mean, I think we have to realize that in the, I mean, certainly in the U.S. intelligence community, it is a big place. Yeah. Um, and intelligence assessments are birthed, chaired for, and sent out into the world through a process that is an agency process. So uh, one of the one of the defining distinctions between intelligence and academic writing, say, um, is that the drafting analyst does not own that assessment. The assessment is the agency's assessment. The assessment is the community's assessment, right? The assessment, right? The drafting analyst shepherds the process through, but it goes through, you know, a a a, a certain number of review, review steps as part of the quality process. And actually, I think that reviews chain process is good fundamentally. I mean, depending on where you are in your you know, career as an intelligence analyst, you either love the review process or you hate the review process. The more senior I got, the more I liked it, you know, and I think that's probably how that works. Um, but if done properly, every one of those steps in the review process is there to inject a tradecraft element that the drafting analyst himself or herself just doesn't have the perspective to do. So I'm, I absolutely believe that I don't care who you are, no person is single-handedly capable of writing a tradecraft compliant intelligence assessment. Neil Wiley can write an op-ed piece, that's fine, but a tradecraft compliant intelligence assessment requires perspective that I just, an individual just can't have. Yeah. So you have hundreds and hundreds of these review processes and drafting, you know, activities going on in the IC on any given day, uh, done by thousands of different people, all of whom have varying levels of training or appreciation for, um, all of which have varying levels of training or appreciation for uh, the ICDs or their particular agency practices. So, um, so some people are going to default to if this, then that. You must, because you know people are different. Others will take it in the spirit it's intended, and they'll apply some degree of fluidity and flexibility to it. And it's really up to the more senior analytic managers at the all-source elements to ensure that that flexibility actually is allowed. But it's not always the, the case that the incentive system or the you know the, the the review system or however the analytic analysis is managed does that. So there's a, a fair degree of variability. 
just before I come to you, Sean, that I, I think the the essence of that though is that it's in the flexibility that innovation and evolution is allowed to prosper. It's a bit like the biological sense of evolution that if you don't allow DNA to change, it's never going to evolve and it becomes unfit for the environment. And I think that's it's in that flexibility of the senior that um, we allow our analysts and others to actually start to innovate and to evolve the, the practice of doing the intelligence that is there in front of them. Sean, you had a point to raise. Yeah, and without opening a, a kettle of worms here, I mean, this this is flashbacks to my time in DIA here, where, you know, trying to get to the heart of why were the brilliant junior analysts not writing out five eyes as opposed to no form? And, and there was so many, because a lot of them were frustrated, they wanted to do it, but they felt constrained by the, the process, if you like, um, in, in some ways, but it, it, it really... For me, it's and they also felt constrained, by the way, by the time it took to QC these things. But it depends on the requirement when you're trying to get, you know, the best possible uh, intelligence to the decision maker, whoever that is. It depends on what that requirement is. You know, if you want something that's going to be rapid so you don't have to declassify to five eyes level, you know, and get it to the, to the person who needs it immediately, then then of course there is a reason why that shouldn't happen. So so I think what I'm saying is that there does need to be that flexibility. I might go back to some of my time in PGHQ in terms of the requirements. So we used to produce stuff, you know, um, at speed. You'd come in at five o'clock in the morning and you'd have to brief the boss at seven and you didn't really know what was happening overnight, but you had two minutes um to brief, generally the great A. Marshall Peach, who probably knew more than you about anything anyway. And if you got it wrong or more than five minutes, that was it. It was it was all over for you. So so the rapidity of the right, what what does the boss need to know now? Um, which we sort of, of course, you know, suited suited the way that we are our culture, if you like, the military culture in there. But that was entirely different from the DI um, staff who were briefing, you know, senior ministers, etc. That that had to come up with a far more deliberate, far more, um, if you like, controlled process. Now, generally, we were in about the same place, but of course, all the military people loved our assessments first because it was right. Tell me what you think. Tell me why you think it. It's, it's similar to the the quote from uh, Colin Powell when he was U.S. Sec State. Tell me what you think. Tell me why you think it, and then I will make the decision on 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 that. I'm misquoting him here, but but so so it's horses for courses, and, and depending on what the requirement is, both in terms of the detail and the time. I, and I agree with you entirely. So this is a good example of where flexibility comes in, and we have that same discussion. Um, Certainly within the IC, I, I spent an awful long time at a combatant command um, before I went to big DIA and then the, the national world. And one of the you know, fundamental tenets of intelligence is it has to be timely and relevant to the consumer. Now, whoever that consumer is, and, and if the consumer is Stu Peach at seven in the morning, um, you know, that's a consumer. If the consumer is the president of the secretary of defense or um you know, a NATO or a Five Eyes colleague, that's great. It has to be relevant. And relevance is um, is the topic something they care about. And then it has to be consumable by them. Is it in a format that they'll actually digest? And is it timely? Do they get it when they need it? Um, and all of those are important for whatever customer you have. So where we get, we, the uh, my colleagues in the intelligence community have gotten tied up in knots before 
is the notion that because you have to do something in a very quick turn, and at the NIC, we actually, it's, it's surprising, at the National Intelligence Council, uh, it's known for writing national intelligence estimates, right, that take nine months or a year or a year and a half to do. But actually, about 70% of what the NIC does are quick turn policy memos for the National Security Council. So it's got a real bimodal distribution in the kind of work it does. It's either, you know, very long-term estimative stuff or it's a lot of, I need it in three hours. Um, so, but the, the misconception is that if you need something fast, that is only achievable by short-circuiting your tradecraft standards. And I believe that it is not only achievable by short circuiting your tradecraft standards, in my view. And also, I would suggest that, you know, um, Air Marshal Peach required the same degree of diligence in the information, that, in the intelligence you were giving him, that as did the prime minister. So, um, but you just have to roll through those basic elements of, you know, go back and think of what your tradecraft's there to do. Am I clearly explaining my judgment? Yes. Am I clearly explaining what that judgment's based on? Yes. Am I clearly explaining anything, any assumptions I made that I think Stu Peach is going to need to know? Yes. You've done your tradecraft. Right. You, you, it's, it's, and that's where that inflexibility of it must be done in a certain road reviewing way gets in the pro, gets in the way, because you can't do that fast enough to do your short term, uh, your short term product. So people think they just have they can they all they uh, all they can do is just avoid some of those steps. No, you just got to do them. You just got to do them faster. So everybody deserves the same level of diligence. It sounds to me, Neil, like the when we talked earlier about tradecraft being in part process and part judgment it's in the judgment that you're going to be able to differentiate the time sensitivity the tradecraft being achieved and so on and that is a that is something you can teach but it's also based on experience which is probably why people with more experience end, end up going up the chain in terms of quality assurance now i am going to move us on because i know that we don't want to stay on each of these points for too long so i'm going to move us on um in terms of the tradecraft then I've, I've heard mentioned a couple of times the different agencies that are moving around in the intelligence community. And the intent, of course, is to build a general understanding of something, particularly at strategic levels of importance. You want multiple agencies to understand more or less the same thing. Does that drive a need for tradecraft coherence across the IC? Is there a need for a fundamental tradecraft that everybody, a core tradecraft, everybody understands, adheres to, to ensure normalization, standardization of output? Or is there actually no need for such a strict adherence? It can be done at the agency level. What's your experience of that now? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I liked the word you used in coherence, because I do believe there is a need for a coherent set of trade craft across the all source agencies. And, and again, by when I'm talking about analytic tradecraft now, I'm not talking about an anal anal tradecraft that's specific to SIGINT or specific to GEOINT or one of the disciplines. So we're talking about all sorts of tradecraft. I think there's a need for coherence because um, we're now at the point within the IC until somebody decides to clamp down on it again that um, – that, um, Assessments written by one agency are generally made available across the consuming government consuming world. 
So if you're the Secretary of Defense or you're the Secretary of the Treasury or Secretary of State, you're going to read assessments from CIA, you're going to read assessments from DIA, you're going to read assessments from the NIG, from State INR. Um, and there needs to be some baseline confidence that um, that that what that that an assessment written by one agency is is fundamentally structured the same as an assessment read by another one. Otherwise, you just spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out what's different. And they used this word and not that word when they talked about confidence. So it's confusing for the client if you don't have some coherence. Uh, I do not believe, however, that there needs to be some stricter standardization. Again, I go back to ICD-203. ICD-203 sets out your ethic and it sets out the general characteristics that a good all-source assessment should have. doesn't tell you how to do it. Mm. It's down to the agencies to determine how they're going to meet the ICD-203 standards. Um, so DIA has its own set of tradecraft guidance that amplifies the standards in ICD-203. CIA has the same thing, although you know it, it, it wounds CIA to admit that anything ODNI does is directive. Um, but they do. And in fact, ICD-203 standards um, are were derived largely from the analytic tradecraft standards that CIA had in the first place. So most of the all-source analytic standards, uh, the all-source analytic standards in the IC are ultimately derived from CIA DNA. And, uh, and that's as it should be, because they've been the leader in those tradecraft standards for a long time. Um, but it's, uh, but every agency gets to decide how to put those basic standards into practice in their own particular product line. And I think that's appropriate. Um, so, so coherence, good, strict standardization, unnecessary. And it, and in my view, it gets in the way of flexibility. Probably almost impossible anyway, given the scale. of And impossible. Yeah. yeah. In practical terms. Sure. I'm going to come to you in a second. I know you've got some background noise. We'll work through it. Um, the, Five Eyes community, which you, of course, had a very, very big part in, both in terms of where you've worked, but also your role in DIA. What is the prospect in your mind of a coherent tradecraft across the Five Eyes for the sharing of intelligence that is actually at the center of the Five Eyes concept? I think the prospect is quite good. And I think actually, if you, you know, I mean, I've, I've been a I've been away from the process. I've been a lotus eater for two years now. So um but I would suspect that if you actually go through the Five Eyes uh, all source intelligence output, it is largely coherent now. Right. Um, there's a um, there's a there's a great degree of similarity between how intelligence assessments are written in the various Five Eyes intelligence establishments. The discussion uh, is vibrant and always has been. Uh, about all source assessment, um, the leadership knows one another, um, and that's very intentionally nurtured. Uh, and in fact, I don't know, four or five years ago, Sean, I think you were there. In fact, when we did this, so there was finally some five eyes coherence on agreed um, language for conveyance of confidence, and that really was the the main thing um, that lets you. Um, cohere the rest of your tradecraft because ultimately the hardest thing about writing an assessment is determining the level of confidence you assign to it 
And if you don't have similar language, if you don't have a, 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 if you don't have a benchmark for confidence, you really can't do much else. So so that to me made everything else possible. Yeah, I'm going to come to a commercial tradecraft perspective on that in just a second, uh, Neil. But Sean, on the Five Eyes question, you, as I say, were directly involved in some Five Eyes coherence uh, from DIA and from other roles you filled. What's your view about the coherence issue across multi-nations rather than just multi-agencies? Yeah, I mean, hopefully you can hear me because I've got some background noise at the moment. But uh, I think, Neil, you were the, the US chair for the particular committee that, that was set up to do exactly that, to cohere, um, the, the, if nothing else, the terminology. And uh, the really point I wanted to make that it, it's such a personal thing that even that was problematic. Everyone was trying to do the same thing. But at the national level, people have, you know, language does matter. It's like, well, what's, what's probable? What does possible mean? Even that sort of thing. And so we ended up coming up with a, it, it was a handbook basically says, in the US, this term means means that and and in the Australia it means so to make sure that we were coherent in terms of what we meant even though we use some of the same um, language I mean we did get some significant process I have to say that probably took a year to do it Um, but we got there and as Neil said it's all about the um, the network and the camaraderie actually and the will to make that happen so while there were some technical pieces so in terms of assurance and um, accreditation that we're always going to get in the way a little bit in terms of the analytical standards there was absolutely a huge amount of effort and success actually in back to the coherence word cohering what everyone meant. What that meant was that if you're sharing a DIA document into uh, Defence Intelligence in the UK or vice versa, that people would understand what was being said. Um, and so you could actually say, yeah, yeah you can actually use that. Um, so language, and it means language, the same thing. Yeah. Let, me, um, let me move us on just slightly then, Neil, to the commercial sector. So Jane's been around doing Tradecraft in the open source environment for 125 years. We think we know a bit about Tradecraft actually in the open source environment. And yet we, and therefore we have our own standards, we have our own Tradecraft definitions and so on. Cohering commercial organizations with the IC as commercial organizations such as Jane's are increasingly integrated into the intelligence process for the agencies is a constant point of reference for the commercial organizations like Jane's. What's your view, though, about the need for coherence in that same sense? We talked about coherence just a moment ago with Sean in terms of language. We talked about the need for a core understanding of the ethic and the how changing as we go along. How does that work across the divide between the commercial and the government agencies in your experience? Yeah, so um, I think it ultimately comes down as as it does with most things in the intelligence community, it comes down to trust. Right. Um, it, it's not possible to use a thing that in, for which you cannot gauge its validity. It's provenance, right. It's provenance, right. So, so trust matters a lot. And some coherence in standards, and particularly a coherence in ethics, I think is fundamentally necessary to underpin that trust. Um, and uh, and you're not paying me, so I'll just say this for free. Jane's is a very trusted name. 
Um, I don't know anybody who grew up. I grew up in naval intelligence. I don't know anybody who, you know, didn't grow up in defense intelligence uh, who didn't have Jane's publications on their desk at some point as a you know fundamental reference for um, anything they were doing. I mean, we really did consider Jane's to be authoritative. And it's not because we knew Jane's was authoritative. It's because we trusted that Jane's was authoritative over, you know, decades of experience tended to pan that out. Right. So I think the importance for coherence with the commercial, commercial world is really on ethics and trust. Now there is some need, um, and if we're going to talk about machine analytics, I'll hold this off. But um, there is some, yeah. So there is need for explicability as well, because that's the other, you know, yeah. part of let's, trust. Let's definitely, let's definitely step there in just a second, yeah. Neil, because it's where I'd like to finish this conversation. Actually, is on that opaque environment that we're moving into with technology. Do you want to pick up on this word trust, though? I mean, in in my induction sessions that I do with all our new arrivals in Jane's, the first thing I talk about is the reason Jane's has existed for as long as it has is because we're trusted. For the commercial world to get inside the intelligence community, not necessarily behind the vault door, but just to be working closely with the intelligence community, they have to be assured and they have to trust, as you say, which is about engagement. And we are human beings. That engagement has to be two-way. Getting that engagement, by the way, for commercial organizations can be quite challenging. Um, Maybe because there isn't trust, but building trust, I say, requires engagement. If you can't get engagement, you can't build trust. It becomes a chicken and egg problem. What could the commercial sector be doing differently that would allow the engagement to at least start? You know, how do we break that chain? What's the, the vicious circle breaker that we can actually get inside the machine and start to help? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And first off, so now having been out of government for two years uh, and having seen government from the outside, I, uh, I I have developed great sympathy for uh, those in the commercial world who are trying to deal with it. It is not an easy critter to deal with, and government does not make itself easy to do. Um, I don't know if the devil ever wrote a book, but if he did, it was the far. Um, so uh, and and it just makes engagement very very hard. Um, I I think the way I would start with engagement, and I found that, that the people who are most successful in doing this it's um, is to try to use a common set of language. So if you're a government analyst, if you're a government manager of analysis, your language that you use is derived from 203. It's derived from your, your intelligence ethical standards. It's derived from those elements of tradecraft you need to convey in order to, you know, have a have a useful and meaningful um, product for your client. I I find that if you try to try to use the same language the person or the organization you're trying to engage uses, it's a lot easier to one, hold their attention or catch their attention. And two, it it immediately develops some kind of appreciation on the part of the, you know, of the government that actually you know what I do. Yeah. And it's that empathy that you know what the government does that um, that I think makes makes you listenable to more easily than someone 
who steams in from the outside and says, I have this wonderful thing you need it because you're messed up now. Yeah. Right. That's, yeah. you know, that, the and, and, and the a lot of that happens. And, and that's, uh, in my experience, less successful degree of commercial arrogance about that that you're quite right probably rubs shoulders the wrong way but the the language point i like that because it's a it's a key isn't it it's one that unlocks the beginnings of a conversation that allows engagement sean i suspect you probably want to come back on that but i'm going to push us on uh, and i apologize for that because i know you will want to speak on it um let's go then into the technology world that we've stepped into and how that's affecting tradecraft um the fact that we need technology to enable tradecraft is not a debate anymore. There's simply no possibility for the human to deal with the vast and the, the high velocity of information that's pouring into the open source environment, as well as other environments with the exquisite capabilities behind them. Therefore, we need technology. My question, though, is as that technology becomes arguably more opaque, more black box, less auditable, less explainable, does that not create for the analyst a problem in terms of explaining how they've got to the conclusions that they've reached? And for the recipient, the customer, a degree of trust breakdown, because I just don't know how that was, just what assumptions were built into the coefficients for that algorithm. How do we deal with that in the tradecraft realm? Because it's come up in lots of our podcasts before, the tradecraft is a way to solve problems, and yet tradecraft is now being increasingly enabled by technology. Yeah, no, I think that's the fundamental question of the future for all of us. Um, as you say, it's not really uh, a subject of debate anymore that some degree of human machine teaming is is necessary in the analytic world. Uh, I would I would reinforce that, though, by saying, I mean, to me, and again, I, I actually spend a lot of time considering the ethics of what it is that we do. And, um, and part of the underpinning ethics of all sorts of analysis is we're supposed to be deriving our judgments based on the fullest consideration of, of, of as much of the potentially relevant information as we can. Um, now, that sounds fine if I say it fast. Um, but in reality, given the, that the vast amount of information that's out there, even in the classified world, we collect far more information than we can deal with. Um, and then you add, you know, the, the far vaster amount of information that's out there in the non-classified world. Um, and given the fact that every piece of intelligence require, you know, has some time constraint placed on it to deliver it, um, it, you know, the poor analysts do what they can with whatever they know is diagnostic or have experienced to be diagnostic in the past um, to, um, to, to generate an assessment and the amount of time they have available but the, the fact of the matter is we are generating our assessments based on an ever-diminishing proportion of the potentially relevant information. Right. And, and that wounds my heart um, as an all-source analyst. So, so, so not only is there a practical imperative, there's an ethical imperative to do this. So what happens now when you start bringing in automation to at least bring more potentially relevant information under consideration of some kind? Yeah, yeah. Um, so inevitably and necessarily, these 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 various machine applications work in some way that is variously explainable. Um, so the the guidance I've given in the past when we fielded these things is that. I have to be able to apply the relevant 
ICD-203 standards to this machine application. It has to be able to demonstrate them. It does not, however, have to be able to demonstrate them in the way that we demonstrate them in a manual assessment. You have to go back to what is that tradecraft element really about? Mm-hmm. It's about, I need to know how you thought. It needs to know, it's about, I had to know what your source was. It's about, I had to know what your assumptions were. So, so I, I've never given the, the automated systems a, a get out of jail free card from ICD-203 because I can't use a black box. If, if, I, if I cannot sufficiently or satisfactorily explain how it works, I can't, I, I can't validate it and I can't stand behind it when I incorporate that into a, um, an assessment that goes to a human on whose decision may indeed rest great political, economic, or indeed human consequence, right? I can't do that fundamental value proposition that I do in a manual assessment. Um, but we have to be careful not to try to hold the machine to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. Because while we like to say we can explain completely how we came to a conclusion, we actually can't. There's an awful lot of inexplicability that goes on in the wet work up here that we just smooth right over. (laughs) So... So the way conceptually I think about this is I need to know how that what information is available to that automated um, machine analytic system what is uh, and what assumptions it has been given to make and then broadly how it processes and then if we have a sense of its performance over time you know statistically that's probably good enough because I don't exp- have to, it doesn't have to explain to me how it got every answer. Right. But what it does have to do is be pretty clear about what it uses and how it thinks. Right. And I think that's conceptually how you get to where we need to go. But, but again, we, 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 you know, we, we we delude ourselves that we know how we think, and in fact, we don't. Yeah, I think that's a great. I think it's a great point, Sean. I'm going to come to you in just a second, but I think what that really comes down to, from what you said, Neil, is the total intelligence cycle and all the things that f- spin off it in terms of decision support doesn't rest in the hands of a black box. There's always going to be a human in or on the loop, but we need to be clear about just how good or indeed not good the human on the loop or in the loop is. Um, and that, that sense of performance, which you're alluding to there in terms of tracking the performance, is something we do intelligence all the time. But I'm in danger of dis- disappearing of a rabbit warren there. Sean, what's your view on this? Is there a room, is there still room for the human in the uh, the loop of intelligence? Well, you know, one of my own mantras that there has to be. When you're making decisions that matter, you there has to be human in the loop. The key, the key comes when that human is and, and, and what their role is. So, but, but you know, I was just going to reinforce what Neil said, really. It's that conundrum, isn't it, between using something as a tool which could be really, really powerful, but not being governed by it. Um, but, but my analogy, analogy would be, you know, you're, you're again, your analyst back to uh, back to the great Stu Peach. And over time, and it wasn't much time, if the 
mental algorithm of the of the individual analyst was such that he didn't believe you. You had about two or three attempts and that was it. And then you got another one in. Um, if he liked you and he trusted what you're saying because of your cognitive, he would write, you're my man or woman and off you go. And, and for me, it's I think that it could be similar for the algorithms. You know, once you start running scripts and the rest of it, if subsequently it proves that that was really good assessment based on a particular, you know, you're not going to make the assessments on the algorithm, but you are going to get the right data. So that was really good. How did you do it? Then you're going to trust that particular piece of ML or, or AI and use it. And then this, the, the rubbish you're going to discard. The key comes with how much do you use it and when? When do you know when to discard it and what decisions you make on it? Yeah, thank you. I'm yeah, going to, I, um, I, I just get to one, one point, Neil. I, I sense from that, though, there is an attention to the ability for the human to understand another human being that we believe we can do that and i don't understand the black box and therefore i'm not going to trust it as much when in fact if you give them the time the machine can prove that it can do certain things that humans can't do so i think there is a cultural educational maybe a psychological thing there that we need to accept in this transition to a world where technology in the loop is an inevitability and our understanding of it and its value is something that we have not quite got used to yet. And I think that's one of those things that in time will become normal, but at the moment still feels abnormal. Neil, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, no, no, I think that's I, I think that's a wonderful summary. Um, and I, I think that's completely correct. Uh, all I was gonna say is that is that, yeah, I mean, the, again, the approach we've taken is to certify that, that an application is, is usable rather than try to certify each answer it gave was right. Um, now, the, the important thing, though, is I think that there, as with anything else, and as with, you know, Sean's example of briefers to the great Stu Peach, um, there is a certain, there, there is a, there's an amount of post-deployment uh, post surveillance that has to go on, on all of these automated, you know, ML systems, because they do, in fact, you know, alter their performance over time. So, um, you know, and it's, uh, it, you know, it's almost like making aspirin, right? If you're an aspirin company, um, you, you've got a product that comes out of the end of your aspirin line that is supposed to be one efficacious. It's supposed to do the thing aspirin does. Right. And two, it's supposed to not have any unfortunate side effects you don't know about. Right. Um, so the same is true when you, you know, employ automated analytics, the the thing needs to be efficacious. It needs to do roughly what you know you think it ought to do, and it and if it has any side effects or you know unfortunate hiccups, you need to know what they are. Now with aspirin, you can you know you can you can fail very safe, and you can grind up every pill that comes out the end of your aspirin line and 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 assay it to make sure it's aspirin. Uh, but if you do that, you're not going to sell a lot of aspirin, so it's probably not good. Or you could just decide that your, you know, a, a immediate production line engineering decision was fine and that you trust your suppliers and that everything coming out of the end of aspirin is really aspirin and nothing else. And I'm good. Um, you know, that, that's fine, too. But there's some pretty heavy risk in there if you're fair. Um, so there's a there's a, a, a surveillance process that goes on in any industrial process to ensure that what you thought was happening to begin with is still happening six months later. Um, and I think that's an important factor to consider when you're bringing automated analytics in. There's a post-release surveillance process that absolutely has to happen. At, at James, we talk about the 
triple lock tray craft that we have, which is essentially a different way of describing our quality assurance process, which is about peer review, senior review, et cetera, and multi-sources. Those three things lock together to ensure that Jane's is more right than wrong, and we don't care to be first. We, we care more to be right. And that that quality assurance process that you're alluding to there in terms of that production line, be it intelligence or aspirin, is essentially what I think generates trust in what you produce, particularly if the language is correct, to use the point that uh, we described earlier. So I'm going to have to draw stumps because there is, I'm afraid, uh, a finite amount of time we can spend on this. Although, um, if you don't mind, Neil, I'm going to put a request in now for a part two of this conversation to pick up on the four or five hundred things we didn't talk about that we could have done, but we'll come to that later. Um, as always with these podcasts, I'd like to finish on a so what, one thing to take away for the audience. So while you're both thinking about what your one takeaway is, and I'll start with you, Neil, in just a second, and Sean, you'll go second. Um, my takeaway from this conversation is as simple as this. In your definition of tradecraft, Neil, you talked about the separation of the ethic of intelligence and the tradecraft, and that the evolution of tradecraft is an inevitability because circumstances require that. I think that separation is not only instructive, I think it's really helpful because it takes away the dogma of intelligence tradecraft. It allows the practitioner to feel like they've got the room, the flexibility to actually drive innovation and evolution, particularly if they're supervising quality assurance officers allow that. But I think for me, that's the big takeaway is allowing the freedom of movement by separating ethic from tradecraft and allowing the two things to move together. Neil, your one takeaway. Well, well first off, I, I, I wish I'd have used yours. Uh, actually, because I thought it was thought it was better. Um, no, I think the one key takeaway from this is the fundamental value proposition of the intelligence community to its client, whether it's the president or you know the commander of a fighter squadron, is trust. And everything we do, our ethic, and those tradecraft standards that bake the ethic into our products are ultimately about developing, strengthening, and maintaining the trust that the consumer has in what we do. Because if they don't have that trust, then we're just one of a thousand other information providers, and we have no unique value. So if trust isn't underpinning everything you think about, as an analyst or an analytic manager, or indeed a producer of Jane's, then you're probably thinking the wrong way. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Sean. So that's all my sandwiches and the chips eaten, actually. But uh, <laughs> tail end, Charlie, as usual. So what I'm going to go with, though, which I think is is kind of a subset way of saying it's the the necessary evolutionary um, requirement for um, for tradecraft, you know, the do the dogma piece, you've got to find a balance between the TTPs, the evolving TTPs and having the agility and the flexibility to meet the need of the of the user effectively. Yeah, I love it. Well, I am, first of all, immensely grateful, Neil, for you taking the time to talk about a topic that has been long overdue to be addressed, tradecraft. I'm particularly pleased that we've got to do it, but also not surprisingly, very, very pleased with the outcome. I hope the listener enjoyed that conversation as much as I did to be a part of it. Uh, and as I said earlier, 
I guarantee at some point your inbox is going to get an invitation to come back and do a part two, three, or possibly a four, because there's just so much we could discuss here. Let me finish by saying uh, thank you very, very much for your contribution. Thank you for your service. 30 years of government service is no mean feat and in incredibly important roles for that. One of the things that's come out of this conversation for me, though, is from all that service, your insight into a really important topic, tradecraft, needs to be captured. And I hope this podcast has gone some way to do that. So, Neil, thank you. No, thank you very much, Harry and Sean. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Uh, you could probably tell I love talking about this. And you you will be impressed, I hope, that I got your Paul Stumps cricket reference. <laughs> yeah, I tend to use that quite a lot in the podcast, and I frequently forget not everyone listening has any idea what pulling stumps actually means. So well done you, Neil. Sean, thank you as always for your contribution. Always a pleasure to be here with you, and I look forward to the next episode, whatever that will come. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.